Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Radio Silence, where we are bringing science into focus for the next hour. I'm Ailish. I'm a Master of Environment student. I'm here with Kai and Kate. I've got a really important question for uh, Kate Huckstep. Mm. Kate, what's your favorite kitchen gadget? That is a really important question. <laughs> I'm very glad that you Starting asked. Starting with the big ones. Um, so... My favorite kitchen gadget is definitely the sandwich press because you can put <sighs> literally anything on a sandwich press, right? Fry an egg, sandwich press, hash brown, cook both sides at once, sandwich press. Like if you're a meat eater, bacon, I've heard, is good to cook on sandwich press. Halloumi, mm. halve your cooking time by frying both sides at once. Like, <laughs> folks, what can I say? I could As long live- as you're okay with like a little bit squished food. Well, no, but that's where you get the ones that you can like lock at different levels so that you lock it to just be at just the right height, but not squish your food. You know, you go the, you go the fancy sandwich press. Like it's, it's the best kitchen gadget. I'm going to be splurging a little bit. I'm getting the fancy one. All right. <laughs> Have what some standards, Kai. Yeah. Come on, Kai. Um, yeah. Uh, so that, that is my answer. Uh, Kai, what's yours? Okay. So as soon as I heard this question, I'm like, it can only be one thing. And it's the most gadgety kitchen gadget that most people probably don't even have Mm -hmm. in their kitchen anymore. Because I'm thinking of like the old fashioned hand beaters. (gasps) Oh, yes. Yes. It's just, oh. Sorry, how does it go? I missed that. (laughs) <laughs> the best part is actually the visual right now. Everyone's just getting the sound. Ailish and I True. are to the visual of, of Kai winding the handle winding the of handle. the invisible. Feverishly. Uh, yeah. it's, it's so gadgety. Like you just look at the, the go, mechanism go gadget and egg sorts of thing and it's like mm-hmm. you turn the handle and there's mm-hmm. all sorts of cogs and stuff. It's great. No, you're not wrong. See, I, I was also thinking of, of a gadget, which is um, like a flower sift but it's like a manual sift and you you turn the, the thing the handle and it sifts okay I don't know so if you've gone like manual gadgets and but i've gone nah, i take it back because that thing is so frustrating to clean it, it never is clean you use it once <laughs> and it'll never be clean again and i think that takes away from the joy and the convenience for me so you know what i'm gonna kate you inspired me to change mm-hmm. my decision um it's the microwave and I know that might be a bit basic, but I think that it is the right no, choice. I think yeah. that's a solid contender. For I, it's pretty very... magical when you think about it. And I'm not one of those people that's going to eat my, my soup or my pasta cold out of the fridge. I think if you do that, you've got something wrong with you. You've got a microwave there. I'm assuming use it. Like just use it and your food will be hot in like three seconds. Well, a little longer. And that's amazing. Look, we do have some bigger fish to fry, I guess, today. Um, but I just thought that was a really cool, like, you know, no, also that was important, an important way talking point to start off. Yeah. Um, if you're new here, we do actually talk about science. And today's topic is on the Anthropocene. And Kai will go into a bit more detail on what that actually means if you haven't heard the term before. Um, but before we head into that, we'll start off with our, our new segment. So, Kai, what is new in the world of science? Well, something that's not new is that we know that mining generates a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, about 10%, mm. and also generates more solid waste than anything else. And th- this solid waste is basically just dirt that they've dug out of a hole and they can't really do anything with, and they've got to mm-hmm. get rid of it. And to put how much waste 
like solid waste they generate in perspective, they reckon that there is more mining material generated than the amount of sediment carried by rivers into the ocean there. Oh, wow. People are digging more out of the ground than rivers are than like rivers flushing are. down in mm-hmm. terms of like little sediment. So that's Humans. pretty insane. Humans. Fantastic. And yeah, that's kind of, kind of relevant to today's episode. Mm, as, very as on we'll theme. soon find out. But while mining is pretty bad for the environment, pretty bad, understatement of the century, very bad for the environment, um, <laughs> it's, also, it's also really important for lots of other human activities like, you know, all our kitchen gadgets need metal and, <laughs> you know, metal is still in demand. So mining's mm. not going to go away anytime soon, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But some scientists from the University of Western Australia and CSIRO have developed a new method of mining that doesn't require digging. And oh. it's called electrokinetic in situ leaching. Now, someone's got to come up with a more catchy name than that. But <laughs> the way it works is you start off by drilling holes and then you pump a solution down into the rocks. And this solution has acids in it that like leaches out the metals. And they've oh, found with, really cool. with certain solutions, you can target just the, the mineral that you're after and it leaves the rest of the rocks intact. So Ooh, then, for nifty. Yeah, that's the, the leaching part. And the electrokinetic part is then they use big electrodes that they put in the holes they drilled and the electrodes set up a voltage a potential gradient. And what that does is basically sucks the oh, positive... sucks the metal back sucks out. Sucks the metal back <gasps> out towards the electrodes, which they then suck it up. Oh, Oh, that's so smart. So you don't need to dig up a really deep hole and you don't need to deal with all of this dirt that you like often a lot of it's contaminated toxic soil that you have to put somewhere. Mm. So you're, you're, you know, solving that problem. And yeah, so these researchers tested it on a, on a lab scale and they simulated it in sort of the, the, the field scale. And they're looking at doing a real trial at some point in the future but if this sort of thing has taken up, it could massively reduce the environmental impact of mining, um, which, you know, that's just great. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> wow. Awesome. Okay. Hey, what about you? So, mine's a little little relevant, not to, so much to the episode, but to just like life right now. Some really cool new research has come out of James Cook University about sound and how sound could be used to combat feelings of loneliness, including during like COVID-19 related lockdowns and quarantines. Um, So this new study has found that people who are socially excluded show a preference for higher volume sounds. So we're talking like music, but not just music, like background noise of any kind um, compared to those who feel socially accepted and that higher volumes can help actually actively combat feelings of exclusion. So the study involved like 12 experiments with more than 2000 people across Australia, Singapore, the UK and the USA. And it apparently seems that like, you know, humans have a preference for louder volumes, obviously not so loud that they're like uncomfortable or painful, but we Mm. have this sort of aversion to really quiet sounds. We, We like louder volumes and that, it seems that this preference isn't just driven by physiological reasons, like, you know, wanting more sensory pleasure, right. From loud music, but are also driven by this need for like social connection. 
Um, which like, this is obviously super relevant right now as the world looks for ways to recover from this like enforced social isolation that kind of mm. living through a pandemic. And, you know, I actually, I have a quote here from Dr. Adam Wang, who is the lead author of the study. And he says that loneliness is both pervasive and costly. For example, it could be thought of as the psychological version of chronic pain, and it can hinder people's work productivity by acting as a distractor. And sound appears to be like this very convenient and essentially cost-free way to help combat these feelings of loneliness that a lot of people are experiencing. And like, there's a few different reasons why they think they found these effects um, Mm. that, you know, sound conveys a sense of interpersonal closeness with others because sound reflects like physical and social proximity with other people. Because if you think about it, like lively, vibrant places tend to be louder than lifeless, barren places. And people tend to be, you know, more verbal around their friends and quieter around strangers. So we kind of have learned to associate loud sounds with like, lively events or people we're closer with so all of this explains why people like having background noise like the tv on totally yeah yeah if you don't plan on paying attention to it like you're still you know we're still comfort i i love Mm. having you know sounds i always need background music or sounds going on in the background and yeah Mm. it's it turns out it's because it just it makes us feel like we're less alone and i think we're social creatures so, you know, pump up, turn up radio silence, radio fodder, <laughs> um, and you'll feel if happier. If you're feeling lonely, guys, we're here. For you know, promo, <laughs> why not? Scream us on SoundCloud. Yeah. Alish, what have you found nice this week? One. Kind of similar theme in a way. Um, so a group of international researchers have found that our brains create stronger associations if we see a face in person. So this team measured participants' brain activity with EEG before and after getting to know the faces of different people. So they exposed participants to people's faces in three different ways. They had perceptual exposure, which was through like a sorting game. So just kind of looking at these faces. They had media exposure, which was watching these faces on a TV show. And then they had in-person. So they were actually like just chatting with lab members, getting to know them. And they noticed that the first finding was that around 400 milliseconds after looking at a face, there is a jolt of activity in a particular part of the brain. And the strength of this signal is linked to how familiar the face was to the person. So the the interesting part is that this single was signal was strongest when participants had got to know the face in person. So watching someone on TV is like the next best thing. Perceptual familiarization yielded hardly any results, but when you actually like talk to someone in the flesh Mm. um the yeah the signal in the brain was far stronger that they were showing that they were familiar with this person and you might just think that's obvious but just uh like despite there being lots of research on how the brain see recognizes and sees faces little is known about how the neural representation of a face changes as it becomes familiar so yeah Mm. if you found yourself like forgetting people's faces over zoom you're actually like that is valid it literally just isn't the same as meeting in person and the other finding of this experiment was that the signal for identifying someone's face is separate to the signal for face familiarity so like even if you can correctly identify someone it doesn't mean that it's actually familiar to you and the researchers stressed that these results illustrate how important it is that we experience long real life familiarization with Mm. people rather than digital um to get to know them just be lived over zoom it can't be lived over Zoom. Um, as much as we have obviously tried in the last year, um, there is a difference. 
Um, well, I actually think that some of those topics did uh, set the scene a little bit for the rest of what we're going to talk about, the Anthropocene, the age of, of humans. Um, so to further set that scene, we have a song by Nick Mulby called In the Anthropocene. Enjoy. You are listening to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder, and that was In the Anthropocene by Nick Mulvey. A very fitting song, because today, that's exactly what we're talking about. Kai, do you want to start us off? Yeah, so we're talking about the Anthropocene. Now, the Anthropocene is a proposed geological epoch. So what is a geological epoch? Now, it's it's an interval of time, like a geological time, and it's geological epochs. Like there's other intervals of time, like eons and periods and all sorts of things. They have different lengths, but they all like all these time intervals are broken up by their different geological properties. So the way that, that scientists know about the differences in history is like looking at the significant changes in the rock layers that like, are in the ground. So one example of like Mm -hmm. differences that you might find between two epochs is the boundary between the late Cretaceous epoch and the Paleocene epoch. And the difference, like one of the big differences in the late Cretaceous, there's dinosaurs and in the late and in the Paleocene, there aren't. Mm -hmm. So like, that's probably oversimplifying (laughs) it a little bit, but like, that's the sort of changes that, that we're looking at. And something else that scientists actually like, did this year was determine that in the in the boundary of these two layers that defined these two epochs like the late cretaceous when the dinosaurs went extinct was a large amount of iridium in in the in the sediment and that mm. was what basically convinced them that it was definitely an asteroid impact that wiped out the dinosaurs because iridium mm. isn't that common on earth right, so the fact yeah. that they found it in this layer goes ah that's that's what wiped that out the dinosaurs. Evidence, yeah. So it, it just goes to show how the like geological record is really useful at, at like determining different things that were going on on Earth at different times, and the different processes that were active and that were shaping the planet in different epochs. Mm-hmm. And that's where the Anthropocene comes in. It's the idea that the Earth is now in a new epoch where it's human activity that is shaping mm. the planet is the, the dominant force and anthropo means means human. Like think of anthropology. Yeah. It's a study right. of, of humans. Like makes sense. makes sense. And yeah. So this idea that we've now entered into this new epoch, the Anthropocene is when human activities are having the biggest impact. Now there are a few different ways how human impacts might be, evident in like the geological record one of the biggest ones is pretty obvious it's atmospheric carbon you know human induced carbon like that old like thing carbon emissions mm, yeah yeah um you know Heard that's going to that be one. visible in like ice if there's any left in <laughs> or, or um like sediments and stuff as well so like that's one example i know alish is going to talk about Another example, um, but the one I'm going to talk about is radionucleotides. And Mm. there's a little bit of argument over when the Anthropocene epoch actually began. So it hasn't really been like, you know, the international body of geologists or whatever that that sets this sort of thing haven't like decided this is when it started or Mm. even if it's really 
like there's still a bit of debate over it. But one proposal is that the start date of the Anthropocene Epoch was the 16th of July, 1945. There's a, there's a specific date. A, a specific day. day. The 16th of July. The 16th of July. Oh, this surprises like, me. What happened on that day? How can like a geological time period even like be started on a day? <laughs> At and 12.47 a.m. <laughs> don't know if that was the exact time, but there would have, there would have been a time as well. Because oh, wow. that was the day that the first atomic bomb was tested. Oh, okay. Yep. All right. Yeah. And it released really started huge to... amounts of, yeah, radioactive material uh-huh. into the atmosphere. Uh-huh. Love that. And, like, this would be a, like, you know, future geologists looking back would go, okay, this is a big event because it was at this time that they, like, certain atomic species or like isotopes mm. that had never existed on earth before Suddenly. would have started showing up yeah wow true because these these isotopes could only be created by like a nuclear bomb or in any other sort of nuclear activity mm. like nuclear power or something mm. and you know these materials were released when they started testing nuclear weapons and released into the atmosphere spread all around the world and it wasn't just that one nuclear bomb after that they started an intense period of testing weapons by mainly the united states soviet union and also the uk who did pretty much all their testing in australia yeah cool. so there's actually massive areas in like outback south australia yeah, where Central they tested, australia, hey. tested nuclear weapons and then they had mm. to go back there decades later and clean up all the fallout yeah so yeah, nuclear weapons oh, testing was was a massive um, impact that humans started to have on the planet. And thankfully, there was a treaty in 1963 that basically banned atmospheric nuclear weapons tests. Um, so the, the main powers that were testing the most bombs at the time sort of all stopped doing that in the 60s. But mm-hmm. in the... I don't the believe decades, that was just a thing. Like, people could just... Uh. It's just mind-boggling. Anyway, it is. sorry. It really yeah. is. And, like, it's not that long ago, really. No. Like, no. It's not. But to give you an idea of how big of an impact this actually had on the Earth, let's talk about old battleships. Oh, yes. Let's please. So, after 1945, there was actually an increase in the demand for reclaimed steel from old battleships. Okay. Now, this is not because people all of a sudden started wanting to recycle metal, but it's because... <laughs> to build replica battleships for their, <laughs> like, you know, pool rooms. No? <laughs> no, it's because the, the steel that was made after 1945 was distinctly different to steel made before 1945. Ah, uh, of course. And that's because old steel was less radioactive. Uh-huh. And there's various reasons why you might want less radioactive steel or what they call low background steel. Mm-hmm. And some of those are the way they would do radioactivity measurements. Say you'd been exposed to radiation and they wanted to test you in the hospital, like how much you'd been exposed to, how radioactive were you essentially. Mm. They would build a, a room that was like full of like basically just radio radiation shielding. Okay, now that's yeah. great. Unless the metal you build it out of is also a little bit radioactive. Oh, gosh. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, you need to get old steel that isn't, it has a lower background. Mm-hmm. And 
there's also some really sensitive scientific instruments. Um, like there's some ones that they're building today for things like dark matter or, or detecting neutrinos that need to be also low background. Mm-hmm. So the reason that the steel was actually made, like became more radioactive after 1945 was because of the process they used for making steel. And it involves pumping air through the molten metal. And this meant that all of the, the radiation or radioactive material in the atmosphere actually got pumped through the steel and got like the radioactive stuff ended up in the steel. Huh. So that means that there was just stacks of radioactive material floating around in the atmosphere enough that when it gets pumped when through it, the yeah. steel. It, wow, that's alarming. Yeah, it is. Now, thankfully, the radiation levels have actually reduced by about a factor of 30 since they okay. stopped the testing. And you go, oh, yeah, 30 times. That's great. But it's still like considerably higher and noticeably higher when you're doing these sorts of like uh-huh. sensitive applications than it was prior to them actually starting nuclear weapons testing. But like, there's other things we do with air besides make steel. Like, you know, breathe, breathe it. Breathe it, yeah. That would be my concern, uh, number one. <laughs> yeah, so the, like, you're right. Like, the, the radioactive <laughs> background has increased a fair, like, a lot since mm-hmm. since they did these nuclear weapons testing. And, like, don't be too alarmed because there's, there is radiation all around you and it's not like all of a sudden everyone's going to start getting cancer because mm-hmm. they tested a yeah. nuclear weapons. But when you're doing really sensitive things where you, you, you know, you're trying to see if a person's been exposed and they're now radioactive, like you need a really mm. low background to, to do that sort of test. And that's where you notice these things. Yeah. But it's, it also definitely like goes to show how human activity has really begun to shape the planet and is something that will leave a lasting impact and that, you know, is, is a pretty good way. And it makes sense why radioactivity is one of the proposed methods for marking the start of the Anthropocene epoch. Mm. And yeah, it just shows how humans can have a lasting and global impact. Good old humans. Don't we love them? Uh, don't we really making a mess of things yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, i mean and we're gonna you know get into a lot more of that with the next two segments of how humans continue to uh have an impact whether that be a good (laughs) one or not you can be the judge um but first i'm gonna take us into our next song which is how to be a woman by greta isaac Welcome back to Radio Silence. We're bringing science into focus. That was How to Be a Woman by Greta Isaac. Today we're talking about the Anthropocene. Ailish, tell us. Tell us. Tell, tell us. us. Tell <laughs> us everything. <laughs> okay, so I don't know why I'm starting off in a good mood. This one is a bit of a downer, just putting that out there. Um, so I'm here to talk about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch or just... Mm plastic and litter in general um so if you've heard have you guys heard of the great pacific garbage patch yeah yes yeah and what do you guys like imagine when you think of the great pacific garbage patch what do you envisage giant swirling puddle of like gross plasticky grossness yeah it's like an island right like it's just like you know yeah so i definitely got that image that it was like this big island of 
crap um, in the ocean. But it's actually a bit of a misnomer. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not an island, um, but it is indeed, as, as Kai said, a big swirling, whatever you said, thing of crap. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a collection of marine debris. Um, and that, yeah, it is mostly plastic in the North Pacific Ocean between California and Hawaii. And it is about twice the size of Texas. Oh, wow. Is it that- is enormous. It oh is un, like imaginably humongous. And this plastic alarming. is is alarming. Uh, it gets worse. This plastic oh. is caught in a gyre, which is these, these um, ocean currents that are just like always kind of swirling. So the plastic gets caught in, in there and just kind of most, a lot of it like just stays in this gyre. Um, and uh, I guess unfortunately a lot of marine life also tends to be concentrated in these gyres and, and it is in, in that particular area. But yeah, the name is a bit of a misnomer. It's not one huge island of garbage. Instead, um, it's, it's more like a, a garbage soup. Um, so oh, cool. a lot, Great. yeah, a lot of the plastic is microplastic. Um, mm. though there's you know plenty of larger items as well, but a lot of it ends up as microplastic and a lot of the plastic sits on the surface. Yes. Cause a lot of plastic floats, but it also exists meters below the surface. And what scientists are now realizing is that a lot of it also sinks to the bottom because many, um, like as the plastic stays there, you know, barnacles and other marine mm-hmm. life starts to grow on it. And then it sinks to the ocean floor. And because right. of this, we actually don't really know how much plastic is in our ocean. It could be far more than, than we actually think. It's, it's definitely going to be more than meets the eye. And, of course, that makes cleanup efforts really difficult. I know I kind of thought, well, yeah. it's all concentrated in this one big patch. Can't we clean it up? I mean, I'll get to that, but no. You just need a giant soup ladle, right? <laughs> that's what we need. That, that's the size <laughs> of Texas. Um, and the, the, <laughs> the other really unfortunate thing is it's not just one patch. There are a number of these accumulation zones all throughout the world. Um, in fact, the one I'm referring to, the kind of famous one near, mm. near, Amer- near California, it's in fact um, technically the West Pacific Garbage Patch. There is another similar one just to the east near Japan called the East Pacific Garbage oh, Patch. Nice. Yeah. Twins. Great. Go humans. So mm. now I said a lot of it is microplastic. What even is that? So microplastics are smaller than five millimeters and they typically come from synthetic fibers, like from clothing or from larger plastics breaking down. Um, and you also have nanoplastics, which are smaller than a hundred nanometers. And basically just microplastics are everywhere. Um, they are absolutely ubiquitous now on planet earth. Again, like that is kind of the legacy of humans at this point plastic doesn't ever (laughs) plastic doesn't ever fully go away um you know what it it breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces and these just yeah they just persist in the environment they can get smaller and smaller but they're still there and once plastic enters the ocean you've got solar uv radiation you've got wind currents other natural factors so they're facilitating this this breaking down even when we get things like you know when you get like biodegradable bioplastic cups and things and it's like awesome like unless that goes most of the most of the time unless they're going into an industrial compost they're not going to break down so even things that we might think are biodegradable are still persisting in the environment if they're not properly um disposed of Mm. so um Mm. some really not fun facts every year at least 8 million metric tons of plastic ends up in our oceans 
And there is currently thought to be at least, and remember I said estimates are probably underestimated, at least 150 million metric tons of plastic circulating in marine environments. That is the equivalent of a garbage truck full of plastic being dumped into the ocean every minute. Every minute. Every minute. Just a big old garbage truck. Every minute, every day, every night. If no action is taken, this is expected to increase to like two garbage trucks per minute by 2030 and four by 2050. In fact, there's this one particular report that came out in 2016 that said, if business continues as usual, the ocean is expected to contain more plastic than fish by 2050. Oh my gosh. I... See, and because, yeah, you'll see when I talk about my bit, you're, that's, a, that's a very believable thing. And I hate how believable that is because Christ. Can't wait. Oh. <laughs> so just absolutely shocking. And I mean, you've probably seen the images, you know, plastic in, in the stomachs of birds and things. Um, a hundred of sea turtle species, apparently, I did kind of want to double check that statistic, but apparently plastic has been found in a hundred of sea turtle species. I guess there aren't that many sea turtle species. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's less visible to the naked eye is that these tiny plastics end up in the guts of, of plankton and plankton mm. are the bottom of the food chain. So this yeah, just gets once transported. You're once you're everywhere. there, you exactly transports all the way back to the food web. It ends up in our stomachs. I, my news story last, last week, if you were listening, actually talked about um, plastic and rice, but mm. even when it just comes down to these tiny little animals, you know, it's affecting their life cycles of marine life, it's impacting their ability to feed, reproduce, survive, and plastic is toxic. It is not something that we want in our environment. It's not just like, oh, it's in the way. No, it, it, it really, it's leaching awful chemicals. It's spreading um, like bad bacteria and disease. It's releasing toxins. It's just an all-around not good thing. And I mean, and what- we don't really know the full extent yet because like, I feel like we've only relatively recently, I say we, the scientific community has only relatively recently switched on to microplastics as being the issue mm. that they are. And so there's so much we still don't know about like what they could be doing. It, like, Absolutely. To our I mean, health. Yeah. Like Kaya said, like the, the Anthropocene kind of yeah started in the early 40s and that, that's when plastic started being um, like that, that's like the, when the era of plastic production began. So mm. it, it's really quite recent and um, plastic has been found in the, in the geologic record. So kind of going off what Kai said, he, he's talking about like radiation. Well, in terms of the geologic record, we can see the Anthropocene um, mm. because when looking at ocean sediments, scientists have found that as soon as you reach, yeah, like ni- the 1940s, microplastics, tiny little fibers, tiny little plastics start showing up increasingly in these sediments, doubling every 15 years, which is mirroring the rate of plastic production. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, what is actually being done about these, these garbage patches and just plastic in general? I mean, legal efforts have been made um, at the international level um, to and, and national levels to address marine production, but... Um, compliance is still poor because partly due to limited financial resources, but we just need like better ways to enforce these laws. Essentially, like they're, it's they're not they're not doing enough. Mm. Some cleanup efforts are underway, but there are a lot of barriers. Um, I was reading a, an interview with with a particular ocean scientist, and they were saying that if you tried to clean up less than one percent of the North Pacific Ocean, it would take 50, 67 ships one year. To clean that oh, up wow. so like when you think of you know the great pacific garbage packs like i said twice the size of texas 
Yeah. Like it's just a, a huge mission. The other mm. thing is these gyres are swirling. So the concentration areas move and change throughout the year. It's not just stuck in one spot. Um, and it's not distributed evenly. Like, like we said, it's a soup, you know, there's, there's areas that there's heaps and then less. It, it's, it's kind of difficult to deal with. And the other thing is um, a lot of the debris is, is microscopic in size, as is a lot of ocean life. So we can't just get... How you know, do you even old... clean that up? Like... Exactly. Like if we took this big, you know, soup ladle, a lot of marine <laughs> life would be affected and, and that could yeah. do more harm than good. So yeah. it's a really difficult problem. Um, there are some cleanup methods that like people are, you know, working on it, but there's no like one big solution that's just making it all go away. Um the good news is, I guess, like we've already seen some improvements, like we have the plastic bag bans here in Australia, but, you know, clearly it's just nowhere near enough. Mm. Um, research studies are underway that model the movement of plastic throughout the ocean. And they have revealed that most of our plastic debris, before it, it turns into microplastic and ends up in, these, in the ocean, it, most of it does start on the shorelines. So mm. it's kind of like, yeah, we can clean up, we'll try to clean up the garbage patches, but it's just going to keep coming in. So it's sort of not really fixing the problem. It would be really great if we can focus more efforts to cleaning up beaches and getting plastic off of coastlines, which when you think about it is maybe more achievable as well, because we can actually mm. access not all, but a lot of these areas. Um, and we just need better recycling programs. We need to completely revolutionize the way we use plastic. And yeah, like, like I just said, we can, we can try and attack the patches and, and we should in time, but I think we just need to change the way we, we deal with plastic and all of this single use plastic is yeah. like economists have actually pointed out that single use plastic is a bad economic model. It's not profitable for businesses to make plastic just for it to be thrown away instantly. So it, you know, it makes sense for, mm. um, for us to start really like changing plastic into more reusable and more even environmentally you, friendly. Yeah. Even if yeah. you don't care about the environment, the money, totally and money, unfortunately is often the bottom line. So yeah, look, there's, no future where all this plastic is removed, but um, yeah, if we can't erase it, we can at least do our absolute best to stop it from getting even worse. So that's my little fun, fun mm. segment. Um, <laughs> just think about the way using plastic. Look, I'm not someone that thinks it's all down to consumers to make these moves, but we can at least put pressure on, on the bigger, bigger um, powers at be. Anyway, we should probably get to a song. Hey, cheer, <laughs> cheer us all up. From this. Yeah. It's like humans are definitely leaving a mark on this planet. Let's hope it's not such a terrible one. But yeah, another <laughs> song. This is Junk by Paul McCartney. That was Junk by Paul McCartney. You're listening to Radio Silence on Radio Fodder. We're talking about the Anthropocene today. Kate, what have you got for us? Well, continuing down the really, really positive <laughs> ocean is a happy, thriving place, thanks to humans, uh, that you just spoke about, Ailish. Mm. Um, how we have filled the oceans with, uh, we have filled the oceans with trash or with junk, um, with plastic, and we've done something else, humans. We've removed um, some some important things from the ocean, like fish, for example. Um, and I want to talk about the impact that humans have had in terms of overfishing, right? I want to look at the concept of overfishing and the question, you know, are there plenty of fish in the sea? Well, <laughs> humans, right, have been fishing for tens of thousands of years, right? Well before this current epoch that we associate with humans 
damaging or not so much damaging, but, you know, affecting the world. Um, and at first we used to fish only to kind of fulfill our own needs, you know, using a spear or a hook to kind of catch a, catch a fish on land. You can kind of picture that very primitive idea of fishing. Um, and I don't know, this is what I normally associate with the concept of like fishing when I think about it, right? Like just relaxing in a boat with a fishing rod, patiently waiting all day, you know, <laughs> reel in your day's catch. And, you know, realistically, this is not what most human fishing looks like, right? As human society started to develop and the population grew and our technology improved, we took to the seas with bigger and faster boats and more efficient gear and fish became not only a source of food, right, but a source of financial gain. And we know humans, as soon as you add money to the equation, you know, and it got traded and exported. And so essentially modern industrial fishing, the type of fishing that stocks the shelves of our grocery stores, it honestly looks more like warfare than relaxing with a fishing mm. rod. Wow. And I say warfare because legit, many of the technologies that we employ today for this industrial commercial fishing were developed for war, like radar, oh. sonar, oh, we've got yeah. helicopters and spotter planes coming in to find these like, you know, direct big factory ships towards the schools of fish. Like these things were developed for war and now we use them to wage war on fish. fish. <laughs> um, yeah, long lines with hundreds of hooks or huge nets to round up massive amounts of fish. Not to mention the other species like seabirds, turtles, dolphins that kind of get caught up in this. Like all of these technologies have allowed people to catch fish at like greater depths than further out to sea than ever before, which is like kind of cool, but also as this distance and depth have expanded, like so has the variety of species we target. So the question kind of begins to arise, like, is it possible one day might we run out of fish? Like, is this, mm. is this something that, that is possible? And so English biologist um, Thomas Henry Huxley in 1883 dismissed this idea saying, and I quote, probably all the great sea fisheries are inexhaustible. That is to say, nothing that we do seriously affects the number of fish. This was back in 1883. Uh, so, why you know. he got to say that? Yeah, okay. He's yeah. probably not even imagining the scale. No, no. Capable exactly. Um, because, you know, and, and at the time, most people agreed with him. But like, boy, oh boy, did they underestimate how damn destructive humans can be. Right. So as the years went by and our fishing activities became more intense, we've started to see some changes where there had once been very diverse communities of fish. We see less and less diversity as the fishing rates, essentially the fishing rates started to be greater than the rates at which the fish could reproduce. Like this is how we define overfishing. This is what overfishing is. Right. So in areas of like high fishing activity, entire fish populations just began to disappear altogether. So I've got quite a few examples because it's very depressing because it's happening everywhere. So we've got the cod mm. population off Canada's East coast has gone down by more than 90% since 1950. Mm. Um, populations of fish off the coast of Florida called the Goliath grouper have gone down by more than 95% since 1950. Mm. Um, and most populations of tuna around the globe have plummeted by over 50% since 1950, with mm. the 
southern Atlantic bluefin on the verge of extinction. Yeah. And, Isn't like, it like millions of dollars to, to get a bluefin tuna? They're so rare these yeah, days. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and like, those are just a couple of examples, right? Like in 2017, it was estimated that 34% of fish populations had disappeared due to overfishing. Like, it's not good, guys. It's it's really not good. And it's wild because like so much of it or like some of it is driven by marketing of certain fish, right? Mm. So for example, the Patagonian toothfish was more or less ignored by fishermen until the late 1970s. Then for some reason, like it was rebranded and marketed to chefs in America as Chilean sea bass, even though the animal was actually a type of cod, not bass. Um, Anyway, soon this started popping up in markets all over the world and is now considered a delicacy. And the issue with this is that these fish don't reproduce until they're at least 10 years old, which makes them extremely vulnerable to overfishing. Because, like, you're not going to wait 10 years. Like, you're not going to be fishing fish that are Mm. over 10 years and have already reproduced. Like, when you're doing these industrial commercial fishing to find these, quote, unquote, Chilean sea bass that aren't... Chilean success. Um, you know, so like this is this is a problem, right? But so what? Okay, like we're losing some species of fish by fishing them faster than they can re- reproduce. Like, what does this really mean? And like, why should we care? And I mean, obviously, like perhaps the most obvious concern is the sort of selfish human one. Less fish plus a growing population means we're obviously mm. losing out on an important like food source, source of protein. But like Obviously, that's not what we care about. The problem of overfishing goes way beyond that and has implications for ecosystems. Like, our fishing activities have severely caused biodiversity to decrease. Um, I mean, I've already mentioned several examples, but I'll hit you with some more depressing stats to really drive the message home. We've got the Yangtze River's iconic Chinese paddlefish has recently been declared extinct, and overfishing Mm. definitely played a role in that. Um, And the WWF, World Wildlife Fund, recently announced that 80 freshwater species um, of fish have been declared extinct. And that's just the Mm -hmm. freshwater species. Um, But, like, it's also important to note that the fish aren't the only victims of the overfishing. Because, like, some of the fishing practices involve, like, really destructive methods, like dragging nets across the ocean floor, which Mm. not only picks up anything that lives there, but also, like, flattens or rips out anything that grows there. Yeah, it's just destroying entire ecosystems. And, like, these fish don't exist in isolation, right? They're part of a food web. Exactly. So when you get rid of that, the the rest of the ecosystem is, is totally impacted. Yeah, and like believe it or not, so wild shrimp are typically caught by this this net dragging method, and the nets are sizes the size of football fields, right? Oh, and yeah. it destroys all the habitats. And then the catch is often as little as five percent shrimp, and then the rest is all bycatch, like unwanted animals that are thrown back dead. Oh. Um, it's it's alarming. But you're completely right, Alish, in the sense that like not only uh these animals existing in isolation there it's actually affecting how the whole ecosystem exists Mm. and so like for example coral reefs right are extremely like incredibly rich ecosystems that are you know not only very aesthetically pleasing right but coral reefs actually house one third of all marine species right so as you can imagine they are quite important um and many different species of fish living in these coral reefs and they all have their own sort of 
little role to play in this ecosystem, but I want to focus on one group in particular, which are the, the herbivores. So mm. like these guys are crucial to the survival of the reef because they munch on all the algae that grows like on or around the coral, right? Which helps the coral survive and dominate the reef and it's all good. But these fish are often a popular target of fishing activity. And in several areas around the world, the disappearance of the herbivorous fish from coral reefs has caused dramatic changes to the ecosystem. Because with these fish gone, the algae starts to like overgrow and dominate the corals, essentially like killing them off, right? Mm -hmm. And an algae dominated reef, like apart from just not being as pretty, right? Just doesn't support as much life as a coral reef does. It just doesn't. Like that's just a fundamental fact. Like you you just don't get the same thriving ecosystem and diversity of of life as you get Mm. in a coral reef and that's you know one of unfortunately so many examples of the way that our overfishing and desire to just like i don't know fish up every fish in the ocean is destroying so many important (laughs) beautiful things and so you know this has all been very depressing so far but is there (laughs) anything that can be done i mean hopefully yes There have been several methods that have been put forward over the years, including like, you know, up to individual governments to set catch limits to restrict the types of, you know, gear that are used for fishing. Um, We've seen examples where marine reserves have been created where like fishing is prohibited and the fish are allowed to recover. Um, Or we can like encourage you know, the reproduction of certain species. And there, there has been some success around the globe, but there's also been this really big push around consumer awareness. Like people, you guys being actively aware, if you're someone that eats fish, um, just being actively aware about the sustainability of mm. your food and where you get it. Like, once again, it's not entirely up to you to solve this problem, but sustainability of like fishing is something that we can all sort of advocate for and put totally that it matters or just be aware of where you're getting your fish from um and the impact that eating fish might have that you might not have thought about before but we help create the market for yeah all of exactly. this exactly <laughs> so yeah. oh well what a what a lovely time this has been um really uplifting episode no but it, i think it's you know you, we, you have to know about this stuff or I don't know. It, it is the world that we're living in, and mm. and without people knowing about it, like I don't think we're going to make a lot of change. So I think we've got to talk about it. Um, as sad as it all is, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Radio Silence. We'll be back with maybe a more joyful episode um, next week. I think that'll be our last episode for this season as well. Um, but before we go, here is the somewhat ironic song of "Too Many Fish in the Sea" by the Marvelettes. Catch you next week.